Hi everyone, so a couple of quick announcements before we get started. First, um, Ashok Beatty has a seminar uh, in May in Milwaukee and he has added a Zoom option. So if you're not in Milwaukee or don't wanna go there for his seminar, In the Eye of the Storm, Staying Centered in a Personal and Collective Crisis on May 6th, then you can stream it. Um, all you have to do is register in the regular way and you will be emailed a link to participate by Zoom. Um, everyone who registers gets the Zoom link, so if you're thinking to come in person, but then you change your mind and you want to stream, you'll have the link no matter what anyway. Also, we have our member event, Opening the Closed Heart, a new look at Jungian depth psychology in light of trauma, affect theory, and defense with Donald Kalshed on May 19th at 5 p.m. And it is in-person only, and he has asked that it not be recorded. Um, it's for members only, but it's very easy to become a member, and you can also bring guests. To learn more about the event, to become a member, and to register, just go to youngchicago.org. Thanks. Welcome to the Jung Anthology Podcast from the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago. Women's Spirit, The Fire Within, with Jean Ginoda Bolin, MD. This episode is the first part of the series, Women's Spirit, The Fire Within. In an effort to keep these introductions short, I'm not going to read the description, and from here on out, I probably won't read descriptions, but the description and Jean's bio are both available in the show notes. Um, Jean Shinoda Bolin has been on the podcast several times. She has quite a long bio, uh, so you can read the whole thing, but she is a psychiatrist, Jungian analyst, internationally renowned author and speaker, and the author of many books, um, which you can find anywhere you get books. Um, this was recorded in 1994, um, so it's from that time and point of view. Okay, now let's jump right in. Each event that I do is separate and one unto itself, but there is a continuity in the women's workshops that I began last year here. I often do women's workshops in some far-off place. Um, in Montana, in the Bahamas, um, on an island, and well, actually, I guess those are the those are the sites of the women's workshops. And it was it was my feeling that much of what goes on in a longer period away from where people usually are might be something that could be done within a weekend. Because what really is done is not that I have something, some body of knowledge that you're supposed to absorb and know and repeat back to yourselves. But rather, I think as I have, have gathered over time what it is that my workshops can do is move you into yourself. And that's been also the sense of 
what I've written and what it has done for readers is the notion that somewhere along the line you read something, you hear something, and there is a re- an evocative response in yourself, whether it is a beginning, aha, whether it's a seed, that there's something that that comes alive or is is uh, watered to grow or is, um, in, in this particular thematic workshop, a ember, a fire that has been dampened, uh, that has been under the earth, that has been been almost, it almost has felt put out, that some energy, some words, some music, something will be like blowing across a coal where there is still some life and something will come alive. So the whole point of all the work I do really is the same as in an individual session as a Jungian analyst, which really is where the spirit of what I do comes from, and that is the whole notion of individuation, that every person is a unique human being who came into the world, as I believe, as a spiritual being on a human path, and that you entered a particular family uh, with its particular history, dysfunction, difficulties, warmth, love, Um, whatever it emphasized, whatever it did not allow to grow, was the beginning place. And many of the themes of your lives come from what that family story evoked in you as what it is that you have to learn, uh, what it is that that you have to do in the world, what it is you have to heal. And, And the sense I have in the individuation process is that People start to look inside to find out what gives meaning, what is alive, what wants to be birthed, and that it is that process that I come to do, is to, to bring something alive in you that it might grow over the months and years, because that's really what, what I think we have to offer each other is some reflection back, some spark, some, some life of affirmation about some process that somebody else is in. And we are all in a process, and it's a lifetime process. Um, there was a line in, in one of Richard Bach's books about, to the effect that if, if you're still alive, you haven't finished what you came to do here. And I think that's true, that this is a major adventure, a major soul journey, and that the soul journey has a different task to do than, than we think we might have, and that there is an uncovering of that spirit, that light, that we, we do on this journey called life. My, my current work in process, uh, close to the bone, life-threatening illness and the meaning of life, draws from it what a soul journey, a life-threatening illness might be. Now, it really does grow out of what I'm talking about, that, that whether a life-threatening illness is a crisis that 
puts your life in danger but offers your soul an opportunity to really know that you matter and what it is that you only could know in yourself is important that that you don't have to get a life-threatening illness to do that some people seem to need it almost as an impetus to discover or to affirm or to have the courage to do whatever it, whatever it is that still remains to do and we're all in that same position of of uh, having to do and know and heal whatever it is we still have remaining to do people who get a diagnosis have the opportunity to really know it um, in a more dramatic way than we who are going along in life uh, not knowing however whether we'll be run over by a truck tomorrow not knowing how long a time or short a time we have so the idea is to bring something alive and that whenever we are truly living the life that is our own there is something that even increases the potential of living longer um, Lawrence Lachan wrote a, wrote a book on his work as a psychoanalyst with people with terminal illness and I think that his conclusions are a marvelous expression of what the individuation journey is about as well he had uh, the opportunity to do clinical research on people with terminal diagnoses and the when he did it at first um, he did it I'm sure with compassion and with the tools of a good psychoanalytic training which is which is often reflective which is often uh, focusing on what is wrong what is um, and and certainly if people were facing a terminal illness uh, the focus was on support for what was wrong and going to kill that person and he said that after he worked with these people that that it felt to him that when he um, his work with them was something that 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 they were doing voluntarily that many looked forward to talking with him um, many seemed to feel better uh, as a result of the the session but all of them died at the same rate as people who were not talking to him and then he started to to uh, work from a totally different tack which is I think the individuation tack and that tack had to do with the spirit with with what it is that the what it is that really mattered to the person um, the questions of authenticity about what what is it that you might be doing that would make you glad to wake up in the morning to do it or to be it and would allow you to go to bed at night good tired what would it be if you could make the world adjust to you rather than always adjusting to the world and what if you knew that you didn't have very much time and so you had the support to do it well uh, what he found is that 50 percent of the people with terminal 
diagnosis had long-term remission. So there was something about what it does when you live authentically, feel authentically, um, have your own fire and not reflected fire or not fire that's put out, I believe. And so that's a yet another emphasis on the same general material that all my work, and I think the work of, of good individuation-oriented analysis always is about, that every person's story is unique, and yet it's possible to say right from amplifying this, um, right from the archetypal imagery, which I've done, which essentially helps people to recognize themselves. And then once you recognize yourself, it's much more possible to live yourself instead of living somebody else's script or live someone else's assumption of who you are, which I think is a major women's problem. I'm going to read what I wrote um, about this workshop in part to remind myself about what this workshop is about, but also because it's full of images. And some images will touch you and others will not. And what I found in my own learning is that the most valuable teaching that I've ever had were ones in which one major idea or something sparked something in me and I had something to feel and think about. And so, though there will be a number of words, obviously, in a workshop of this length and intensity, it's like the important one is one that you find yourself hearing in yourself and and you find yourself working on it or it comes up again as almost background. The background of this workshop as you walked into it was music from an album called Full by Rachel Bagby called I Am a Full Woman. And there is something also on this positive side that I find interesting about what is missing often in depth analysis is the positive reflection back about what is there in the person or what is in the process of becoming, what it is true to grow towards. And I was drawn by um, the metaphor between the similarity between Michelangelo and um, and growth in a person. That is, he looked at huge pieces of marble and saw the figure that it was his task to free that was imprisoned in that marble. And I think that the work of being a parent, a teacher, a coach, an editor, a director, um, and, and certainly a therapist, is to help the person to see who's there that wants to come out in the full beauty of what is authentic. Uh, whenever there is like a true note, we feel it. 
There is something really beautiful about what is true. And so to find what is the true note, the true image, the true face, the true fire, whatever it is that is true and draw it out, uh, really helps. In the spring, fairly recently, in fact, I, I had an opportunity which I, I said yes to, which was to participate in a conference in Tuscany. And I had, as a keynote person uh, with me, um, someone who is far, far away from doing Jungian analytic work. And this is Louise Hayes, whose books on affirmation seem to any Jungian uh, rather simplistic and all of that. But uh, what's impressive is that is that how it is that she has grown herself into this person that she is and her life story of that being uh, raised in poverty and um, been sexually abused and emotionally abandoned and and how somewhere in her um, early adulthood, mid-adult, early mid-adulthood, she came upon science of the mind and got a sense of the possibility of affirming the positive in herself. Now, her books on affirmation leave out something that I found happened and was true and um, asked her about, that in the process, she did two things. One, she, did, she went into the realm of, of positive thinking affirmations, but she also happened to also go into some good therapy. So she did the depth stuff, which is part of growing. That is, you can't just cover things up. You do need to go down. You do need to go down to find the authentic feelings that got smothered, uh, that, that were not welcomed, that would, that would cause you to get into difficulty if you expressed it, and that's still down there somewhere. So there's a necessity, clearly, to go down and deeper to find out what has been buried there and, and what you went through, to a- affirm your own life story. And then there is finding out what's there that, that truly is good, wonderful you stuff, that is the stuff that, that if, it, if only you were in a different culture, in a different family, in a different situation, would have been encouraged to, to blossom, to grow, to, 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 to be um, expressed as a part of you. And everybody has something down there that is a genuine possibility that can be brought into life. And maybe if we're still around here uh, and we're not dead yet, that all of us continue to know that there is some, something growing that we could bring out into the world. So there's something, there's some real need for a descent, but there's also some need for an affirmation of what's possible before it's possible. And when you think about good parenting, there is a, a positive assumption, a positive projection based not on what the parent needs that kid to be, but on what the parent can see as an innate possibility in the child. And what's reflected back is not just where the child is in the present, but like Michelangelo, there's a kind of a, a, a seeing and intuiting of the possibility of what might come to full growth uh, and is in the process of becoming. Uh, that is what an editor, a director, anybody who is teaching 
well as helping somebody to grow into what is there as a possibility, and you see it, but it hasn't yet come into full being. So a song like, I am a full woman, for example, is a kind of a affirmation uh, about the fullness that we are at the same time that we are in the process of becoming. I mean, there's a paradox in this business of being um, a person growing. There's always paradox. There is that we are total and complete the way we are, which is true. And on the other hand, we are in the process of be becoming, which is also true. And, and the ability to hold the paradoxes or the opposites is a major positive contribution of the whole Jungian school of thought, which, which has something to do with holding the opposites so that you are both and. For this, you do have to move into the right side of your brain, that the way we humans are created uh, anatomically seems to be that, by and large, though this is simplistic, we have a left brain that is what has been developed since the Greeks, and what is equated with the masculine world we live in. And it's about logic, and it's about reason, and it's about um, being able to know cause and effect in a linear way. It's about linear time. And there is some real possibility that this is an evolutionary kind of a thing, and that the men, especially in the genetic pool, who could develop that way of thinking, and it is a thinking mode, a strategizing thinking mode, and women do it well, who have a natural talent for doing that, although it's a talent that, that, that um, really needed to be probably hidden from view during many, many periods of history, and, and often today with women, it's it's true, too, that you, that you know better than to show the full range of your capacity to strategize and be smart and to know things. So whether it is that you have Athena as a, uh, a way of, of um, really being able to know what's happening and strategize, because she, as the goddess of wisdom, was really the goddess of strategy and the smartest, most intelligent archetype in, in, in Greek mythology, that she is who you wanted to be if you wanted to have on your side if you were a hero, because she was not um, affected by emotion. And consequently, she could just think her way through whatever needed to be thought through. Well. That capacity is something that often girl children learn, if not before the age of 10, 11, and 12, after that age. There's recent really good work by Carol Gilligan, um, and then, then Marie Wilson and two other, other authors wrote A Mother-Daughter Revolution, which was a way of, of trying to to have not happen what seems to happen in our culture, which is when Sleeping Beauty woke up, she was 50 years old. 
that somewhere around <laughs> nine or ten, a, a assertive capacity to perceive what is real, uh, an, an egalitarian, uh, I can do anything girl, turns into a, um, a woman or a handless maiden. The handless maiden stuff really starts around that time when you become incompetent, when you forget that your mind works really well, for example, and you stop uh, speaking right out with a straight, here I am, this is what I perceive, this is what I want, voice, but rather women start to speak hesitantly, make statements that end with an up inflection as if it's a question, you make a statement, but it's it's put out there tentatively, and there's a whole way in which that kind of energy, which is fire, which is one, I'm going to use the metaphors um, very freely because fire is one of those metaphors that can take many forms. I mean, there, there, there are many ways in which uh, one can be fiery, and certainly fire and spirit are, are usually equated that if you are a spirited woman there is a way in which you put yourself right out there if you do it too much it's sort of called in your face but uh, it is what like a, a girl who doesn't know that she shouldn't be like that is like and then she learns that she has to uh, figure out what it is like to be a woman and and um, and act the role. Uh, Gloria Steinem uses, I was trying to think about the word it's, that comes to mind about how we are all in many ways pseudo, um, that what we do is we look around and we see what it is that is expected us of us to be feminine that we all have a sense that it is not how we would naturally be, and so we have to act the part of what is the model of what a girl, what a woman should be like. And so we do an act uh, which begins with what clothes do we wear and how do we wear our hair and how do we use our voice and all of that. And um, find acceptance or not, depending on how well we can pass as this model that we were supposed to be. And um, and the question of when Sleeping Beauty woke up, she was 50 years old, has to do with that once you become postmenopausal, like you were prepubertal, you 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 can you somehow are no longer being scrutinized. Um, in the same way, which is both a loss and a gain, um, and the possibility of then speaking your truth directly and being eccentric and wearing what you want to wear and not going along with the program comes up again um, around menopause, if you're lucky. 
Uh, and the hope is of mother-daughter revolution and, and other good work that's coming out is the hope is that women don't have to disappear, that don't have to lose their spirit, their fire from the ages of, say, 9 to 50, that it's such a shame so that the more you discover of your own fire at any age, the, the freer you are to be yourself. Now, I describe this workshop with this imagery. Women's spirit, the fire within. Fire as a feminine aspect is a central image. Fire takes many forms in our imaginations, dreams, metaphors, and our life experiences. I'd like you to think and remember dreams that you've had in which fire was a metaphor. Because it's a very common metaphor in dreams. Fire, something on fire. We think of hearth fire. This is Hestia's fire. The fire at the center of a round hearth. The fire that in which this particular divinity was considered actually present. She was the divinity that had no persona. She did not go through putting on a good face, uh, a sexy outfit or armor or whatever it was that she needed to, to interface in the Olympian world of Zeus. Um, she just disappeared. Her persona just disappeared and her essence was considered present in the fire at the center of the round hearth. And it is what made a home and a temple sacred. So there's something about this image of fire, feminine fire, which is about sacred fire. The, the, the power to have a center in yourself that is like Hestia's fire, that is, which casts warmth and illumination, is in the image of the mandala, um, because that's really what a round hearth is like in a building. And it is what illuminated, warmed, and was metaphor for archetype of meaning or self. That is, anything that is illuminated and graced by Hestia's fire that is an active archetype in yourself is a potential place where you enter a temple experience. That is any one of the archetypes. And I describe this part of Hestia in Gods and Every Man because I didn't really have it all together when I wrote it in Gods and Goddesses and Every Woman. But by the time I wrote Gods and Every Man, I had a more understanding about the sacred level of the archetype the, the symptomatic or difficult areas of the archetype and the ego sides of the archetype. That if you have a natural archetype that's quite active in yourself, then it goes down into, into the depths. It is part of what you need to come alive if you're going to live deeply and authentically. And that's one reason why anything that helps you to know what's there helps be a guide. So if you had an archetype of Aphrodite, or if you had an archetype of Artemis, or if as a woman you have the archetype of Hephaestus, who was a craftsman who built things 
at the made things at the forge and made both beautiful things and useful things. Um, or if you were as as Hermes, uh, all the archetypes, male and female, are are in us. Whatever the archetype is, that when you live it out, you have a sense of losing track of time and being totally absorbed in it. And when it is, there is, are moments in which you descend to enact that archetype with the self as, as, as the energy that, that, that touches it then it's like a temple experience of any, any of the divinities. That is, you go, if you sought to have a relationship, if you, if you sought to evoke or invoke the power of that divinity, if you sought to be under the protection of that divinity, you would go to the temple of that divinity. And there you would find that archetype, that presence, that divinity, that Olympian divinity, say. Um, in a temple experience, always with the fire that made the temple sacred, always with Hestia present. So for any experience to be truly sacred for you, it's one in which you come into a precinct or place in yourself that when you are enacting it, there really is a sense of kairos time in which you participate in time and there is a sense of the holy moment of it where you feel sacred, holy, whole. In that moment, there is nothing else that, that concerns you, nothing else that you need. It's that moment in which in your absorption in the presence of that archetype being lived out in you, it is a sacred moment. Hestia's fire is present. So we start with the hearth fire as the hearth fire of temple and of home. So what is it that makes you feel at home where you are? What, uh, and, it, and it has nothing to do with what the place looks like, uh, where it's located, uh, unless Hestia has a hand in it. Otherwise, it, it might have been chosen by any number of other aspects um, and might also be the house that someone else that influenced you thought which was what you should uh, aspire to have. And now you have it, but it doesn't feel like home. Because whenever something feels like home, the goddess of the heart, Hestia, is present. There is some meaning here. There's a sense of sanctuary here. There's a sense of, of this place is an exterior exteriorization of an interior sense of well-being that is home. So there is the hearth fire. Then there is campfire. Now many of us lived out those years of being free people as campfire girls, Girl Scouts, uh, before we were of interest as being sexual beings or um, 
extensions into the world of who we were supposed to be. And often there is in a all-women's circle, which if you did go to Girl Scout camp or Campfire Girls camp, again, there was a, a campfire and there was the what you sat on around the fire. And the image was the fire at the center and then out in nature. So you were, you were daughters of Mother Nature, not daughters of a particular social class or a particular family or anything. And the goddess that was evoked there was always Artemis, the goddess of the hunt and goddess of the moon, uh, the archetypal Girl Scout and archetypal sister. Uh, that, that aspect of a woman that finds divinity in nature. This was what I described in the Taoist psychology of being a Girl Scout at age uh, 8, 9, 10 and going away to, to camp, which was in Camp uh, uh, Osito, Camp Rancho Osito, that has had the bear as its imagery because it's by Big Bear Lake in Southern California. And uh, we used to sleep this was this was rustic camp. This was not tennis camp, uh, expensive camp, etc. This was the Los Angeles County Girl Scout camp, and we slept out of doors. And so I would go to sleep every night looking at the stars. And there was that moment in which something shifted, and I mean, you started to look at stars and. You know, we would look for, for shooting stars. For one thing, stars are so beautiful up in the mountains. There's so many of them. There is a sense of the beauty of the universe that is that, that touches the soul or the spirit. That is, beauty does this. And it may be a way that women as a gender have more access to divinity through that capacity to see beauty in the universe, in the face of a person, in a sleeping child, in that there is that uh, the positive side of being women has to do with this realm is allowed us. In fact, this, this realm is often encouraged, which is a capacity to see beauty. Well, you can see beauty at one level, or and it can then sink in at a deeper level. And as Aphrodite was the goddess of love and beauty, that when you have an experience of divinity through beauty, it's like there is an awe. And she was the goddess in, that, that was revered and was held in awe before she was devalued, depreciated, and, and uh, feared. So here we touch in to uh, the capacity through, through being first out of nature as a daughter of nature, which is Artemis, the goddess who, who took great pleasure in wilderness and being out there where there aren't any paths and right ways to do things, but rather there's a sense of exploration and a sense that, that mother nature and women's nature and exploration and the capacity to aim for a target and, and be assertive was just a natural part of the feminine. That once you're out in that 
that realm, the possibility then of feeling the beauty and being affected by it becomes possible. And for me, I think that was, that was clearly an awakening of what could be called the pagan aspect of divinity. That is, what it is that touches you that is of nature, not of revelation to somebody else, not about church and not about hierarchy and not about formal sacraments, but about you having a sense in which you are part of this beautiful universe. And for me, there was first the, the kind of just being awestruck that there were so many stars, because I'm a city person, and we don't see that many stars in the city. And out in nature, out on top of a mountain, there, there are just, it feels like jillions of stars, and they feel so close. They feel bigger and closer, and you see the Milky Way, which you never see in the city. And, and um, during the summer months are often, I don't know whether it's true winter months, it could be, but the only time I've been out there has been in the summer, where you can see shooting stars. And initially it was just one of those things where see a shooting star make a wish. But the concentration at looking at stars to see a shooting star and being touched by the beauty of it, that was a place where I made a shift and got it at some intuitive feeling Gnostic level that I was part of this beautiful universe and I had a place here. And that's a expression of the sacred and the self. The sense, it's also the sense of the Tao. It's when you really have a sense of mattering and that you have a place because you're here. And the place that you're here within, which is Mother Nature, is a beautiful place. Um, parenthetically, I think about how, how uh, Descartes, Cartes, Descartes so wrecked nature uh, and body by, by defining us as, I think, therefore I am. And I was listening to a Buddhist teacher on tape the other day who, who, who put it much more in the way of Mother Nature. He wasn't talking about Mother Nature, but he was saying, instead of, instead of the hearing, I think, therefore I am, his words were, I breathe, therefore I am. <laughs> you know, that means you don't have to prove yourself. All you have to, you don't have to do anything. Just the fact that you're here and breathing is enough is that you are part of this magnificent universe and have a place, because you're here. I breathe, therefore I am. I look out at the stars and realize intuitively somehow that I am part of this magnificent universe and I have a place here. And at that point then I've moved out of ego into self. And I have a connection with everything, everything. And that feminine affiliation is is part of that right brain, part of that uh, aspect of, of connectedness that when Jung did his major work on synchronicity, he called it an a-causal connecting principle. Well, that a-causal connecting principle, which is not cause and effect, is not logical, often is a connection that goes much deeper that has to do with what we love. Uh, what what's authentic, what we 
truly feel deeply. And then a connecting principle that is like magic happens, and we have synchronicity going on. And there is a sense of when the pupil is ready, the teacher will come. When the, when the um, interior is open to the new experience, it presents itself. It, it, it comes to be a trusting attitude that if you shift yourself inside, don't worry. The outside's going to change and meet you in your new changed place. And this uh, element of connectedness, I mean, it's not rational to think about being connected to, to everything out there when you're only nine years old, because you don't have the tools to think that rationally about how we're all molecules. And I mean, you can, you can now make some assumption that we're all made of the same stuff that the galaxies are made of, and somehow we are all connected. But that's a very mental sort of sense versus gnosis which is that, um, and that is really what is tremendously important to develop. Uh, the ways in which it's G-N-O-S-I-S, it has to do with like the Gnostic Gospels, which did not need hierarchy and revealed word that got passed on, but rather that it was ca- that we are capable of of knowing divinity um, directly, just as we're capable really of knowing beauty directly, that um, we even, we, we mistrust our ability to know what it is, to say what it is we love or see as beautiful because there are standards set as to what is supposed to be beautiful and what an educated uh, palate uh, likes to eat. I mean, whatever it is, there's some expert that says, this is better than that. And if you want to, to fit in and look good, you'd better train yourself to like whatever it is that experts like, even though what might make your mouth water and might make your heart sing would be something quite different. So that what it is you know, the gnosis part of, of, of knowing what matters, is what I believe is the individuation task of really knowing and trusting that if this gives you joy, if this is beautiful to you, if this is what makes you feel at one with yourself and as if you know truly that you belong here, then go for it. You know, this is the truth. This is the gnosis. This is what you can know inside yourself. Uh, and, to, and to do that, and this is what Lawrence Lachan is asking of people that have a terminal illness. Uh, what do you know would make you feel glad to wake up to do? Who would you be with where would you be that when you woke up you would be happy that you were there? And at the end of the day, glad that you spent the day doing whatever it was. For that, you have to start trusting your innards. And a lot of it metaphorically does have to do with fire. 
because fire is such a metaphor for what is alive and flickering and casts warmth and light inside ourselves um, and all. So from hearth fire to campfire, which is is that out of doors, one with nature, um, fire. And then there's the, the image of creative fire. Um, when you feel yourself creative, there is a liveliness, uh, a, a, and, and with all kinds of fire, there is the potential that it will totally take you over and consume you. So I mean, there's this consuming fire possibility, and, and don't play with fire imagery. It's like fire is an element that you take seriously and joyfully, and you also contain it within a hearth or wherever it is, because it can get out of hand. It, it as metaphor, uh, needs to have somebody tending it, watching it, uh, keeping it fed. If it's a, if it, I mean, there are problems at both ends. There's a problem of keeping the fire alive, and there's a problem of not letting the fire get out of hand. So creative fire is about that urge to, to make something out that, that reflects the spirit that you have. And, it, and it, we think about creative fire often in terms of, of what, what's called fine art, uh, writing and painting and sculpting and that kind of a thing. But creative fire is just that alive energy that allows you to, to, to take pleasure in solving or doing or taking care of anything that your heart, that your heart desires. I mean, it, it's a heart fire that, that because you love it, you can figure out how to cook something differently. And, and if you're putting the, the herbs in, you're drawing on your creative fire. It could be in gardening. It can be in solving a computer problem. The main thing is you being alive, and it's your fire that is is alive in the moment. And again, whenever you do that kind of thing, you're you might be tired when you've finished it, but that always leaves you with a with a sense of satisfaction. And then there's passionate fire. The fire, again, that has the possibility of, of both uh, uh, making you feel so vitally alive, because passion for anything has so much to do with an instinctual quality of just being alive. And so when, and again, it's one of these words that shouldn't be limited to how it's used so often just with sexual passion because it spans every kind of, of experience. You can do anything with a passion, anything that you throw your heart and body and instinctual sense of this is me and I am fully present doing this, you are doing passionately. And it might be that you are an Artemis who is being passionately an activist. I think about the kinds of things that, that um, and, and next Tuesday, um, the annual Ms. Foundation dinner is happening where, where the Gloria Awards are given to about four women who have been doing frontline work. Um, and always, when you look at who starts the first uh, rape center, battered women's center, displaced homemaker center, wherever it is, it's usually a woman or a couple of women with a passion for justice and a passion for fairness and a passion for women's being safe or 
or um, so that all the kinds of things that have to do with sanctuary, with justice, with various qualities that, that cross the board with the archetypes. Um, if you have a passion for whatever it is, you're willing to go to the edge with it often and put yourself on the line for it. If you're passionate about your art, you're passionate about justice, passionate about a relationship uh, where you will risk yourself because of the passionate intensity with which you hold this person, this cause, this expression. So there is the passionate fire that is scary. You are not a well-behaved, proper young woman, proper middle-aged woman, proper professional when you are passionate. You might even speak stridently. Heaven forbid. <laughs> you know, the women's movement began with bra burning. Uh, you are not afraid to look foolish, ridiculous in making a point about your passion. Uh, passion is not judicious. That's why it helps to have some Athena around. <laughs> so that if you are passionate about something that you also had some some strategists say, you know, not now, not here, over there, or something like that. But uh, to be passionate about thing, something is to be fully alive. It is uh, to have a reason for being that in the moment uh, moves you. And, and passionate fire is something that may have been put out along with creative fires and sacred fires if in the family, in the culture, in the marriage, it scared the significant other with power to make you uh, feel less or afraid or intimidated. And sometimes the fire has to be strong enough to overcome a fear, and sometimes it is. And then um, purifying fire. In the metaphor of alchemy, which Edward Edinger speaks of, writes of, writes amazing charts of all kinds of examples of, and, and calcinatio is the, um, the, in alchemy, you keep going through the various processes. You go into the solution, um, into the water, salutio. You go into the blackness, negredo. You go into, every single one of them has a name. Well, calcinatio is when you go into the fire and, you, and, and all that comes out of the end is white ash. And it purifies, it's a metaphor for the purification, driving out of impurities, uh, uh, drying out of wetness that has to do with over-emotionality or something like that, so that you go through a process of going through the fire to be purified so that your pure essence is what it is that is left at the end of that particular um, alchemical process. Then I think you go back into solution after that and you move towards uh, a union of opposites. And So there's a whole series of processes and it's described in alchemy, but the one about going through the purifying fire, when you think about how it is, uh, it strengthens 
uh, how if you are making a sword, for example, um, how it must go through the process from going to uh, from from iron to steel and getting its own edge and all how much it in involves going through the fire and getting getting sharpened by fire and purified by fire and and fire certainly does purify an intent if you are really going to be initiated into doing something that requires discipline like steel out of iron then you are going to have to go through an initiation or rites of passage that usually involve a certain trial by fire, being on the front lines, enemy fire, whatever the, the images are, that to become a doctor, to go through internship and, and be there as people who are, are in real um, crises physically and require that you be there uh, to meet the experience or to fail at it. I mean, that's a trial by fire, and it, and it purifies the intent always. Do you really want to do this if you have to go through that? Do you really feel strongly enough to be in this relationship if you have to go through the fire, if you have to be equivalent of burnt at the stake in order to move through this phase of your life into the next one? Do you feel strongly enough about standing up for what you really want when um, you are going to be viewed as the archetypal witch and feel yourself the subject of other people's anger and you are going to have to go through the fire if you're going to come out the other end. Now you cannot know the value of it unless you actually go through it. You can't, but there is a risk. You know, it might destroy your spirit rather than strengthen it. It might put your fire out. Uh, you might be burnt to a crisp and be nothing but cold afterwards. Um, there are risks with fire, as with life, because that is one of this is certainly one of the the major metaphors. The spark of life um, is, after all, a fire symbol. So fire can consume us, it can destroy ourselves and others. I mean, you can, you can be, for example, passionately involved in a cause that has to do with justice, and you could end up uh, becoming a terrorist at other end and destroy yourself, your humanity, and others because of your passion for what started out as a notion of justice. Often, the destructiveness of fire has to do, again, with it being uncontained. That the woman in whom that fire uh, burns uh, doesn't hold it and choose where and when it would be expressed. Fire certainly can be transforming. It's, it's, um, there are metaphors and realities in which something that is, um, for example, there are certain seeds that, that only come to life under certain circumstances of heat, others that come alive under certain circumstances of water. But, 
but there is a range of life that requires certain levels of temperature before life can, can, can grow. And there's a fire that transforms a person. Um, one of the experiences I, I had that, that some of you who have done workshops um, that, that, that have been more on the New Age side, you may have had the opportunity to do a fire walk. And I found that the, the actual doing of a fire walk uh, transformed something in me by enacting something that, that uh, was profound. I mean, I, the, the first time I did a fire walk, I did it as only an intuitive feeling Jungian probably would, which is the notion that it was an enactment of a ritual that meant something to me, metaphorically, and that if other people could walk on coals and not be burned, of course I could too. And it didn't even occur to me how hot it was. And it didn't, even, it didn't really sink in, even as I talked about the temperature and how hot it was and, and all, that I could actually get burnt walking on it. I mean, that's when you're really out of touch with your body, I suppose. And, and uh, so on that particular day, it was very windy, too. Um, it had been windy. And they build a fire, they build an enormous fire, and then, and then it gets down to coals. And you have about six feet of coals to walk across. And it's really very hot to stand next to it. And, and, um, but for me, the metaphor, I was going through a major transition in my life. And it, and it meant something symbolically about going across the fire and transforming this phase of my life. And that there's a, for me, the metaphor is so, strong at times that if I enact a metaphor and really know what it means, it's, it's part of what makes something shift in me. So I had this notion of I would do this fire walk and I did it, I went over once and I got, um, there were places where it was really hot and what I found later is that the, the coals had stuck to, to, to the soles of my feet, and I had, and I gotten some blistering, but in that moment it was like I was more concerned over I hadn't I hadn't done it ritually the way I quite wanted to do it, and I had a choice of going over one more time, and I did, and all it did was give me a few more blisters, and so I I came away from that experience with the perfect experience for me, which is I wouldn't get a cross cut free, <laughs> I would get burned. And that I really had to take that sort of thing into consideration, which was not what I might have done otherwise about firewalks anyway. And then the next time that I had to do a firewalk, I figured I wouldn't because my feet now knew that it could get burnt, and I didn't think my feet would be willing to do that. And I no longer was going to make my... By then I was much more in my body, and I was, my mind was not going to tell my feet what to do. And this was at the win a winter solstice. And it was a long, dark night, and it was a long, dark period of it's a dark period of my life. And the the night of darkness, of the longest night of the year, and the whole notion of doing a firewalk was evoked by the um, by by the friends of a man named Tony Joseph, who had honored the feminine with his work 
considerably. He had written on astrology, he had written on mythology. I knew him because he had assembled a series of, of films doing things in the world for the goddess. And he really saw himself as somebody who was doing work for the goddess. And so I knew him as a filmmaker, and other people knew him for other aspects of himself and his work. And he, he was dying of AIDS. And so on the winter solstice, the, there were about 30 of us who gathered to be with him and to be with our own dark nights um, walking through them. And the metaphor was to have a fire walk. Uh, only this time it was a very different experience. It was a group experience of really being with the dark night, with the possibility of death. We would go out to see how the fire was going one by one during, as the fire uh, burnt down. And again, it was one of these huge fires initially, and it kept burning down. And when it got to be coals, it was like I was aware that if I stood next to the fire, I'd, I'd back away because the fire on the, the fire that was radiating from the coals was so hot. So I, I had assumed that I would not take this fire walk because I wasn't. It was no longer. It was before. It was a bit. It was heroic, really. It was also metaphoric and and while there was metaphor involved there really wasn't even that strong a metaphor involved by this time I was really there because it was um, the winter solstice and because Tony was dying and because it was a dark time for me and there was an opportunity to be with all of that and there was also going outside under the stars and here because it was it was in the Sonoma Hills and be with this fire, tending the fire, and being with my own thoughts. And then when the firework started, at some point or another, without thinking, my body, psyche, made a decision to just do it. And it was a remarkable experience because it was cool, uh, because it felt like I was walking on styrofoam rather than on coals. And I couldn't even feel the heat, even though moments before, standing on the side of the fire pit, or the fire walk, I could feel the heat just radiating up. And it made me, it, there was something about the transformation of my worldview that came with that. That it broke the laws of, of physical laws. Now, I had seen physical laws being broken before, um, because I had been interested in and had the opportunity to observe some of the major psychics who could move things and one of the people um, was the man who could touch things like keys and bend them he did a lot of spoons which are easy to bend but you take a, a major hard um, key and watch someone touch it lightly and watch it bend and it's not the same thing and then on this particular experiment the angle of the key was marked and then it, it sat there by itself and the angle got more got narrow it, it bent more without anybody touching it so he had done something to the molecules of that key apparently that went beyond physical law 
And I did take that in. I mean, that, that, that is an influence. I do think about that. But it was, it's different than when you put your body on the line and, so, and you do something and, and you know something um, at a different level than you did before. And so for me, that was a particularly uh, transformative experience to, to, to do that. And then I went on to talk about wildfire, and this is the fire that, that is not contained, that, um, that burnt the Oakland Hills down. It usually happens when things are very heated up, like August is a wonderful month to do it when, in California when the, when the state is truly uh, not green but golden because all, all the hills are brown and gold and everything could be ignited easily, and if a fire starts... It really goes uh, wildly, and um, that's that's uh, an expression sometimes about emotion that isn't deep. That just that just flash fires moves through, consumes what's what's in its wake, and goes on. Now, from a standpoint of nature. A certain amount of that is part of the organic phase of, of nature in that it's the fire set by lightning, for example, that, that does something very interesting to hillsides. I, over Easter, walked on, on Earth Day rather, walked on Mount Diablo, and there was an area that had been burnt by fire. And... In that area, there were seeds. This is where I really understood. There are seeds that require fire to get them to, to, to bloom, as well as when the brush underbrush is, is burned away, how a different ecological mix happens on the hillside. So it may be that from time to time, a certain natural wildfire um, happens that that may be like the kind of fire that that burns over things is temporary and maybe in the in the longer run actually helps rather than hurts. I mean when you've been stuffing how you feel and you've been raised to uh, never show your feelings, strong feelings, maybe something triggers uh, a wildfire that just flashes up and sears for a while in a relationship, but the possibility of it just being momentarily out of control, burning what's right in front of it, and then passing over, and then there being something new coming up after that might be real. So, um, and then the last fire, type of fire, that I, I thought about was Pentecostal fire. And at the Feast of Pentecost in the Christian story, the followers of Jesus who now sensed or had the experience that there had been a resurrection gathered, and what they wrote about was that over the head of each person there was a fire, and that they could speak in tongues, and that they were obviously in a different reality than usual. Pentecost is a revealing kind of fire when you know some divinity directly. And in the, the, one of the myths of the Grail legend, it was at Pentecost that the Grail appeared at 
Camelot and each of the knights saw the grail in his own way and no longer could just sit around the round table but each had to then seek the individuation journey to, 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 to go in quest of the grail. So there's something about Pentecost, Pentecostal fire, that evokes um, a new level of, of spiritual knowledge. Uh, again, one that is very Gnostic and that it, it is something that is very individual but within a community of people at, at Pentecost. It's like each person had an experience of, of the personal fire overhead. I thought about other things. We fight fire with fire. Uh, we go through the fire and how our fire I suppose one of the things that I do want to emphasize on our time together is the different metaphors that have to do with your particular fire how um, our fire is put out rekindled and dampened how we can be fired up flare up, burnt up or be burnt out um, that is something that that to lose one's spirit is to really lose lose it as far as fire goes. And there is something about being in a, in a continually uh, denigrating, emotionally abusive uh, situation relationship when you keep getting reflected back. Um, some other person's version of you which is <coughs> negative in some way that how it is we seem to need each other to to uh, feel fire our own fire it's almost like like to not have it reflected back means that that it goes out and in in a culture that has felt that sexuality is not something that belongs to the woman, but belongs to the man who owns her, which is not where we are now. But this is the tradition through which we have come. Uh, patriarchy has a great fear of women and women's power and women's sexuality. And women's sexuality, as a goddess, as a goddess uh, Aphrodite, is very threatening. And so we get put in this Madonna-whore dichotomy, which is if we are sexual, that we are being whorish, and that sexuality should be punished if it leads to a, a baby that was born out of wedlock or a pregnancy that was unplanned and that somehow women must be punished for their sexuality and men must have control over that sexuality. And if a man, if virginity is the uh, value in the masculine culture, then the woman has to come to a man totally innocent, unaware that there could be a different lover than the one that she will have for life. And if she shows interest and is naturally passionate, 
how how scary it is and how even um, in the in the last century that would that would be something that she and well even actually in the current uh, times I was reading a book by a Mormon woman who was describing how in the Mormon expectation that wearing this garment under one's clothes, which in the powerful play uh, Angels in America, all of that Mormon stuff about stifling sexuality and wearing this garment that is like a body thick t-shirt so as to not become aroused um, is is part of the experience of, of of being initiated. That is, that one should be uh, asexual. One should dampen the fire always. And always, it's been women's situation to um, to be punished for it. If you are in a culture that values virginity and you are raped, then you are punished forever in that culture. You can never be a clean woman again, never be an honorable woman again. Um, and anything that has gone on in culture for a long time becomes part of the, the, the field of consciousness or the morphic field to which we touch into or the collective experience that we are influenced by. And so even today, uh, I think it's impossible for a woman to be fully, positively sexual, uh, choosing who it is, when it is, that she would like to be herself sexually, that it's not possible. Uh, that, that we are supposed to be responsive uh, within a marital right, for example, whether we want to or not. We are not supposed to be sexual before. We're not supposed to be sexual during certain, in, in the Jewish tradition, there and in many others that have to do with menstruation, lack of being unclean. There are whole periods in time when you are not supposed to be sexual because you're unclean. And who you are sexual with is 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 something that is made much of and all of that all of that makes sexuality as passion very dangerous for women and we are very unfree to be fully sexual beings in fact of all the archetypes that i described in goddesses and every woman it is aphrodite who has really not been liberated in the culture so there is how that fire is put out, how we cooperate in putting it out because it's dangerous to have it acting up. Um, again, it's different when you contain something, hold it and choose versus uh, when someone else is respons- makes you responsible for containing it and controlling it uh, and responsible to some outer standard now, we do need to hold opposites in a culture, and that's the difficulties of it. That if we are going to, and, and one of the things is that I'm describing the fire aspect, but I'm also very much aware about how it is that we are complex people, 
and that every woman has, um, say, a whole committee of aspects or goddesses in her. And Aphrodite might want to be expressed, but you could, but Hera or Artemis or Athena or some other aspect of the woman herself might quite genuinely um, oppose it for cause, for cause of the, the, the whole person that you are and what your values are. So there are these complexities. It's not all that simple. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about training programs, live and self-study courses, archives, this podcast, our blog, or to find Jungian analysts near you, visit our website, youngchicago.org. Thanks to our 2022 donors who gave at the contributor level or above. Barbara Anand, Juni Alcott, Usha and Ashok Beatty, Building Leaders Inc., Judith Cooper, David J. Dalrymple, George J. Didier, Mary Doherty, Ryan Mayer, Boris Matthews, Judith A. Robert, Diane Sherwood, Lawrence C. Tingley, Deborah Tobin, Don L. Troyer, Robert Ulrich, Gerald A. Weiner, Ellen Young, and Wei Zhang. You can support this podcast by making a donation at our website, newchicago.org.